Welcome to WFUV's What's What. It's Thursday, June 15th. What's What is a daily podcast that explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues in the New York metropolitan area. And includes features and interviews exclusively from WFUV. I'm Caroline Ely. And I'm Christina Lulich. And here's What's What near you. The first summit on young mental health began this morning in the Javits Center in Manhattan. New York Governor Kathy Hochul called on mental health providers, parents and caregivers, advocacy groups, and more to discuss tackling youth mental health in the state. Governor Hochul hopes that state officials will be able to take meaningful action after hearing what the state's youth has to say. Some of the major themes on the dockets are social media and living in a post-COVID world. Today at noon, writers held the Broadway rally in solidarity with the Writers Guild ongoing strike. The rally was hosted by writer Paula Pell and featured speeches and performances by Sarah Bareilles, Seth Rodetsky, and many more. The event is part of a series of rallies that are taking place across the country in support of screenwriters. With Juneteenth coming up on Monday, the National Dance Institute is celebrating the life and poetry of Maya Angelou through dance. So WFUV's Ben Oppenheimer spoke with Jermaine Jones, the Institute's executive director, about the show this weekend. What made you choose the theme of Maya Angelou for Rise this year? What we try to do is um, educate children on different themes and matters um, while teaching dance. So this year, just looking at the environment that we're in and the thinking about the importance of words and literature, we wanted to focus on someone as historic and as great as Dr. Maya Angelou. And so we we researched her story. We thought it would be inspiring for the children, um, you know, and, and so that's why we went with Dr. Maya Angela. How do you incorporate uh, her life and her poetry? Uh, how do you kind of mix that into dance? Because she was not a dancer. Um, how do you think that connection can be made? Do you think it can just be having a persistence and believing in yourself no matter what the career path is? What we did was we looked at her different works. We looked at her life and her different works that, that she produced. And we had the kids learn about Dr. Maya Angelou. We did this in the, the New York City public schools, and we did it with our team that's performing this weekend. And so they learned about resilience. They learned about the strength of your words. They learned about perseverance. Um, and so what we decided to do is really look at the dances create dances around those key words, those key items that we wanted the children to, to, to learn about. And so it's, it's, you know, taking her life story and sort of inspiring us to create pieces and pinpoint the, the item, the takeaways for the children. What do you think this performance uh, will be able to teach people, specifically children um, in this instance, about Juneteenth and the importance of it and being educated on it? You know, we had thought about this theme, you know, not thinking about Juneteenth and the fact that it is a federal holiday now. Um, and so we we looked at this event and decided to we had to make a decision whether or not we're going to do a show on that day. But we we thought, you know what, this is a very important historical um, African-American woman, and we should celebrate her as we celebrate Juneteenth. And we thought, you know, this is a perfect opportunity for families who, with children who have the day off of school to come 
and enjoy the show and celebrate the life of a, a very important African-American woman. That was WFUV's Ben Oppenheimer talking with Jermaine Jones, executive director of the National Dance Institute. For more information on the celebration of Maya Angelou at RISE, their 2023 event of the year, visit nationaldance.org. Father's Day is on Sunday, June 18th this year, and people are set to break spending records for the holiday. That's according to the National Retail Federation. WFUV's Avery Loftus spoke to shoppers about their Father's Day plans. When it comes to giving gifts for the holidays, New Yorkers are saying they like to keep their spending equal for both of their parents. Yeah, it has to be equal. Got to keep it like 50-50. I think I try to keep it relatively equal. Usually my sister and I kind of split the gifts, so we'll we'll get something that's, you know, $100, $150 uh, for each of them, and then we'll just split the cost 50-50 between the two of us. The National Retail Federation found that consumers will spend over 65% more on their mothers than their fathers this year. I like to make sure that it's even. I didn't even know that. So, like knowing that there, like you know, that there's such a there's a huge standard to moms, and then there is to fathers. I feel like you know, I feel like that that's actually really, really uh, that's interesting to know. And some people say they only think about Father's Day at the last minute. For Mother Day, everybody talking about Mother Day. Right. But for Father Day, people do not hardly remember. But a lot of New Yorkers are choosing to spend quality time with their parents on Father's Day. This year's top gifts are greeting cards, clothing, and outings. Um, I'm going to go up and visit my dad in Connecticut and just spend time with him. He doesn't usually like gifts, so... This year, Father's Day will be celebrated on June 18th. With WFUV News, I'm Avery Loftus. That was WFUV's Avery Loftus reporting on Father's Day spending. Today in 1965, Bob Dylan recorded his chart-topping hit, Like a Rolling Stone, just one year after almost retiring from the music scene while struggling with his identity as an artist. During recording sessions, Dylan struggled to find the essence of the song and blend the confrontational rock lyrics and social commentary with his folk singer image and style. A breakthrough was made when rookie musician Al Cooper suggested they break the folk mold and try it in a rock format. Columbia Records was worried about what the response from critics might be, but the song was met with praise as a revolutionary combination of musical styles. June is Pride Month, and here at WFUV News, we're celebrating by sharing stories that highlight queer voices in New York City. This week, WFUV's Isabel Danzis takes you to Foley Square, where she talks to members of the Queer Big Apple Corps marching band about the intersection of queerness, music, and performance. When I got to Foley Square, I first noticed a long truck parked on the side of the square. People started unloading huge instruments, We're talking big marching drums and brass instruments. The truck and the instruments are all a part of the Queer Big Apple Corp's weekly marching band rehearsal. And that's the sound of the band itself. The Queer Big Apple Corp's was founded in 1979 as the country's third queer band. And they've been active ever since. Altogether, the group has over 200 members. 
the Queer Big Apple Corps marching band takes the stage starting in March. However, they hit their stride during May to prepare for Pride season. They travel all over the East Coast, performing at Pride parades during June and other performances during the rest of the summer months. You know, our mission is kind of twofold. We serve two audiences. We serve the people in the band by being just a really great space to gather and do something together. And all of these people have jobs, but they're also musicians, and it gives them a really great place with a fantastic community to come and be musicians and make music together. That was Jason Cannon, the executive director of the Queer Big Apple Corps. He says on top of serving the band members, the group is also a loud and visible representation of the entire queer community. I mean, we run the gamut of everything. We have, I think we did a survey last year with band members and we have, I think, 15 separately identified genders and eight separately identified sexual orientations. And um, we're all ages and all ethnicities and all backgrounds and all cultural backgrounds. So it's just a great visible representation of how the entire community can come together and make music. Cannon says the band has become family to many people. Emerita Begley, the band's artistic director, agrees. She says that today, there are so many pockets within the queer community that sometimes it can be tough for people to find where they fit in. Now we have, um, we have a very diverse community, but that can also make you feel isolated, like living in an apartment building. You're living in a building with hundreds of people and you know none of them. Begley started with the Queer Big Apple Corps in 1982. During her time with the band, she's seen it change. Begley says when she first joined the band, there were only 12 people, and they performed only a few times throughout the Pride season. Begley says the band was mainly a place for people to be out. It became a family for me in a slightly different way than today. Uh, you know, I needed people to tell me that it was okay to be gay. I don't think the kids today need quite need that, not, not like we did, maybe some do. Now, with many more performances and members, the band's mission has expanded. It serves as a way to counter the feelings of isolation that can sometimes come with being queer. Matt Wise is a member of the Queer Big Apple Corps. He joined the band in 1987 after meeting the group at a Lemonade Stand fundraising event. He says he has also been able to watch the band grow and evolve. Well, yeah, we were struggling back in the 80s. Um, we were a small group, and I think our focus was more about protesting, like, you know, in your face. They used to say we were um, not your mother's marching band. And since I've come back, the band is huge. We're like over 100 people, and everybody's young, and it's all about love and having fun. The band also feels like family to Wise. He says it has shaped his life in many ways. First of all, I have to say, after I joined, um, there was another group that was connected called Hot Lavender Swing Band, which was like a Glenn Miller style band. And I met my husband there. He's a trumpet player. Um, so the band is like family to us. There are people here that have known us for 35 years. For other members like Cat Ho, the band serves as a form of activism. In terms of what that means for like activism, it's showing them that, hey, the queer group is more than just what you may perceive it to be. It's more than just a binary that exists. It's a group of people and a massive community that exists here. Jason Cannon, 
the executive director you heard from earlier, says the visibility the band has has never been more important. If you just listen to the news all day, we're getting vilified. And I say, you know, and I'm not a young man, and I feel like it's almost as bad as it ever was in terms of vilification of what it means to be trans and what it means to be queer. And when people see us, our performances are nothing but joyous. And so instead of having this picture of, I'm not even going to say the words that get said about us, uh, you know, in some circles, but instead what you're seeing is just incredible harmony, fantastic performances, and just jubilance throughout the street. Among other events, the Queer Big Apple Corps is set to perform at New York City's Pride Parade on June 25th. I'm Isabel Danzis, WFUV News. That was WFUV's Isabel Danzis, talking to members of the Queer Big Apple Corps about the importance of the band and the queer spaces in music. And that's our show for today. I'm Christina Lulich. And I'm Caroline Ely. Check back with us tomorrow at 3 o'clock for more news, music, and culture. And tell your friends so they can find WFUV's What's What at WFUVnews.org and wherever you get your podcasts.